Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of John? John chapter 1. This text, the Gospel of John, is a first century account that was written by the historical figure John, who was a part of the eyewitness community of the historical Jesus. More intimately, John was a part of the inner circle of Jesus' closest of friends. John was a former fisherman whose life was forever changed by Jesus, who chose John not only to be his disciple and also his biographer, as we have the Gospel of John in front of us. This is a biography of Jesus written by John. He was not only Jesus' biographer and disciple, but more intimately, Jesus chose him unto salvation and made him a member of God's own family by, 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 by God the Father's own Son, the historical Jesus, God the Son in the flesh. In John chapter 1, we'll read as he records the, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who eternally dwelt with the Father, who incarnated, became a man, and lived among us. Now, uh, before we get into that text, let me introduce the topic of today's message. The title of my sermon this morning is The Heart of the Problem. I want to offer today a systematic theological study of biblical cardiology. If you have had heart issues, you know you go to see the cardiologist, and this morning we're going to talk about the issue of the heart, and we're going to turn to Scripture to be our cardiologist, to help us to understand what, what is going on with the human heart. As we understand the human heart, it helps us to understand our own lives as we come before God and, and we live life in this world. Uh, it helps us to understand that. It helps us to understand ourselves and understand God and understand other people. We have been saved to be a people who are witnesses, who go and share with others about who God is. So it, it's not just this topic of biblical cardiology, not just about us understanding ourselves and God and others, but it's also a matter of our witness. If you take your faith seriously, and, and the charge to share your faith verbally with others, and I emphasize verbal because sometimes people say, you know, think they're sharing their faith by I don't know, doing good deeds or something like that, which of, of, of course is good. By all means, do good deeds. Faith without works is dead. Do good deeds. But don't mistake the doing of good with the sharing of the gospel. That's a verbal thing where you have to actually open up and share who God is and what God has done in Christ. Understanding biblical cardiology will help you with that because often as you share your faith, you will experience... Uh, others ignoring you or rejecting you or not being interested in what you have to say about God. And you, you, you might be pouring your heart out to people about who God is and what He's done and you're just, getting, you're just getting that blank stare. You're getting that thick brick wall. And you say, you know, or even, as, you know, maybe even in your family as a parent, you say, I didn't raise my kids this way. Why are they acting this way? You need to understand what biblical cardiology is and what's going on in the heart. That helps you with your witness as you're sharing with others. It helps you in your worship as you come before God. And it helps you just in your own life when you go within and you're trying to think, okay, what's going on right now in me? If we are to understand, we need to start with the beginning. And the beginning begins with God. John chapter 1, verse 1, look at the text. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. John's Gospel begins with the beginning. He begins his Gospel the very way the Bible itself begins, the book of Genesis, with God creating. 
uh, the, 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 the beginning starts with a God of love. A triune God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. Who, who in Himself is love. You see, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. You have this triune God who in Himself is love. Who creates the world and gives a beginning to this cosmos. In the world that he has created, he chose sovereignly to create beings that we call humans who reflect his image. We, we reflect his image in the way that we live life in his creation. We reflect his image in our very being. It is ontological and relational and vocational. Vocation relates to work. Relation, you understand that, ontological in our very being. We are made in his image. We are made to know his love. We were made to uh, reciprocate that love. We were made to go into the world and, 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 and to sh share His love with His creation and live accordingly in His creation as it was designed. The beginning, the story that Genesis tells, the story that John is telling here is a story of love and also of unrequited love as creation rejects the Creator. In Him, verse 4, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light, verse 5, shines in the darkness. Uh, the darkness here is metaphorically getting at that unrequited love that I was speaking of. This leads to the first point on your outline, the darkness. The darkness. The world is in darkness. Christ came into the darkness to offer love to that aforementioned unrequited love. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, John writes, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John writes in verse 11, if you draw your eyes back into the text, that He came to His own and, and those who were His own did not receive Him. There again, you see that rejection. God, this loving being, pours His love out and it's rejected and humanity rebels against Him. If we are to understand the human heart as a part of our worship of God and our work in the world, our witness of Him, we need to understand the darkness. A lot of people, apart from the revelation of Scripture, as they are trying to make sense out of our world and the brokenness of our world, they will look to other things besides the human heart. You'll say, why is this going on? Why is this going on? Why do we see X, Y, or Z? And they'll say, well, you, you see, we need better education. We need more government programs. We need more of this or more of that. More education, more reform, more of this, more of that. And they're looking for solutions in all the wrong places. You know, there have been more mass shootings than days in 2023. The United States has experienced 484 mass shootings so far this year. There have been five mass shootings in the United States in the first four days of September so far. The U.S. has experienced at least, as I said, 484 mass shootings this year. This is according to the Gun Violence Archive. This averages out to almost two mass shootings a day. Mass shootings, by the way, are defined as an incident in which four or more victims are shot or killed according to this particular archive I'm citing from. Incidents like the mass shootings in Dallas, Nashville, Tennessee, Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, they continue. They continue. Leaving people in mourning and sparking repeated debates. And you watch those debates and what do you say? Well, how, how do we make sense out of this violence? Well, you see, we need to take guns away from people. 
I'll spare you the stats on stabbings. Well, we'll take the knives away from people. We will start spooning one another to death. It'll happen. Sporking each other. I mean, it's, why? Why is there all this death? What, what's going on? Verse 5, the darkness does not comprehend. Verse 9, there is a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. It is a world, we live in a world that has turned on their Creator. And so Jesus comes to reveal that light, to show us this darkness. And it is no wonder that as you study the teachings of Jesus, and in, in our public reading of God's Word this morning, we were in a section of Jesus' teaching, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And what is He doing in that sermon? He's getting at the heart of the problem. What is the heart of the problem? The problem of the heart. Jesus is getting at the heart in His teachings. The heart is a major emphasis in the ministry of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes, they get at the primacy of the heart. Blessed are the, Matthew 5, 8, pure in heart, for they will see God. In all of his teaching, Jesus shows the importance of the heart. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of defiling themselves by eating with ceremonially unclean hands, the Pharisees said. Rebuking them, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 15, 8. He goes on to say, Jesus does, listen to this, Matthew 15, 9, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. We are living in a day where humanity is being taught by men. You have YouTube, you have the media, you have the news, you have podcasts, you have all the rest, the teachings of men explaining the problems of our day. Christ came and gave us all that we need to understand the problems of our day. He lifted up the law of God so high, so high to expose that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. You see, God's law says, do this, right? And the point of the law of God isn't so that God can shake His finger at you and tell you how despicable you are, but the revelation of the law is to reveal to us the problem of the unrequited love story, that we have all gone astray. And His law reveals that we fall short, and His law exposes our heart, and so in our public reading of Scripture this morning, right, we looked at Jesus and He said, hey, you've heard in the law, don't commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who lusts after someone other than their spouse is guilty of this. You've heard in the law, do not murder, but I say to you, everyone who has been angry with another is guilty of this. You see, the, the spirit of the law, it, it reveals that the letter of the law, it's, oh my goodness, it's even harsher because God not only judges our deeds which is right to do. It's right to judge someone's deeds, but He also judges our hearts. It is not merely murder that violates the holy God and, and, and his, over, his overwhelming and, 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 and love that, he, that He's poured out. It is not only the law that, 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 that says, hey, don't murder, but it, it, it's also revealing in this law that anger is an issue and anger begins in the heart. It's not only adultery, it's lust in the heart. And the way of Jesus is getting at this, that our hearts are lustful and murderous. The problem of our day is that many will deny this. You start to talk this way with someone, that is the biblical way, and they'll say things like, but I'm, I'm a good person. 
I'm, I'm a good person. The documentary that we watched on Friday night as the gospel was being shared with one individual, the guy said, I'm, he actually said, I'm pure in heart to the evangelist who was to share the good news with him. If you're pure in heart, then you're already saved. You're already clean. The problem, however, is that the opposite is the case. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It reminds me of the story of Winston Churchill and the socialite woman. Maybe you've heard this story of Winston Churchill and the socialite woman whom he propositioned playfully to make a point. Churchill said, Madame, would you sleep with me for five million pounds? And the socialite woman said, My goodness, Churchill. Uh, well, I suppose I would have to discuss the terms, of course. And then Churchill said, Well, would you sleep with me for five pounds? And the woman responded, Mr. Churchill, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And Churchill responded, Madame, we have already established that. Now we're just wrangling about the price. Right? Um, now he's making a point, albeit in a very weird way. Don't, uh, don't, don't use this one uh, out on the streets. Uh, get yourself in trouble. But the point that he is making is there's a problem in the heart, right? You would do it for X amount, but not for Y amount, so money was the motivator. Jesus is making the same point, albeit in a much more righteous way. The law says this, but let me press into your heart. Because you might think, I've never had blood on my hands, but your heart is full of anger. You might think, I've never slept with someone other than my spouse, Oh, but your heart is full of lust, you see. He starts pulling back the exterior and exposing the heart. Jesus gets at the heart, which is the heart of the problem. Friends, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So today, as we dig into biblical cardiology, we're going to understand our world and ourselves and our witness. Now, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and the word for heart in the Greek is cardia, hence cardiology. Now, intentionally, I know we've got some grammar uh, English people in the church, and you might already be trying to do the spell check on me and say, cardiology is not with a K, it's with a C. Uh, and if that's you, uh, <laughs> actually, it's a kappa in the Greek. There's not a C. So I intentionally have it spelled that way because that's what corresponds to the Greek. And yes, it annoys me that my Microsoft Word keeps underlining it, but that's the way you would spell it originally. The cardia, the kappa. This is the term that is used from which we, when we transliterate it over for us, so if you go see the cardiologist, it's going to say a C. But anyway, the point of getting into cardiology is so we understand the darkness. And the darkness, as we understand biblical cardiology, is much deeper than darkness. It's what we call depravity, which is the second point on your outline. Depravity is a theological term that we use to reflect the biblical teaching of the heart's problem. As a physician of the soul, God looks at our heart and his diagnosis of the heart is depravity. It's depravity. Now we're going to look into biblical cardiology. We're going to ex explain a little bit more about this. And so you're going to see on your outline that I have the what of the heart to begin unpacking these things. So the Bible uses this word cardia to describe the what of the heart, uh, which fundamentally is who we are at the core. Uh, we've talked about the Greek term cardiology, but also in the Hebrew you have various terms that are used for heart, and fundamentally, they are getting at the, the center of your being. So what is the heart, you have as a question on your outline. 
According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the heart, the cardia, is the innermost part of man. The heart is the seat of the mental or spiritual powers and capacities. The heart is the seat also of rational functions. Let me emphasize that because often we'll say things like, oh, he was thinking with his heart, not his brain. Um, you know, or your mind is somehow the antithesis of this. But the heart is used in Scripture as both the seat of emotions and also the mind. We think of the heart as an emotional organ and the mind as a cognitive organ, but the Bible does not support that idea. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't uh, locate them within our organs, but in the immaterial aspect of the human in the soul. The decisions and the cho choices that we make in life originate in our souls, and they originate fundamentally with what we love and what we desire. The Bible just calls that the heart. Therefore, activities that we identify as cognitive are actually also coming from the heart. Solomon describes the importance of the heart in Proverbs 4.23. If you're taking notes, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The heart is like an artesian spring. All of our hopes, our dreams, our desires gush from the heart. Every drive for meaning and, and, and significance originates in the heart. Our behavior flows from the heart. It isn't caused by the circumstances of other people. It flows from the heart. So why was there this shooting? Why was there this stabbing? Why is there this poverty? Why is there this? Why is there that? It's flowing fundamentally from the heart. The heart with its passions and desires. That's the wellspring. There are over 750 references to the heart in God's Word. The Scriptures tell us that the heart conceals, discerns, instructs, mediates, muses, uh, perceives, plans, plots, ponders, thinks, and weighs. Preparing a sermon like this is a lot of work because I have to comb through a lot of texts in order to distill it into a message for us to understand the 750 references. Modern science attributes mental faculties to the brain. Given the prevalence of, of philosophical naturalism in our day that reduces humans to just, you know, uh, 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 machines, lumps of, of, of cells that are, that, that are just kind of, uh, you know, predetermined and just, uh, just a, a biological machine, we need to resist this and press back against this. So there's this peculiar dichotomy between the heart and the mind, the emotions and the brains, but in Scripture we see that the mind and the heart, they are coming from the same place. Uh, without getting into it for purposes of today's message, we, we need to understand at the base level that the heart is involved in all of this. The heart is involved in all of this. The heart is key in our worship for, for us who are believers. Worship flows from the heart. The heart loves, the heart prays to God, the heart rejoices to God, the heart seeks God and trusts God and yields to God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with what? All of your heart and with all of your soul. Moses' question in in, 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 that, he, that he offers here, what does God want from us? Right? He answers it. God wants your whole heart. He wants it fully devoted to Him. As creator and sovereign, that, that, that makes total sense. He's in the right place to want this of us. Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So why don't 
We trust Him with all of our heart, brothers and sisters. Why don't we worship Him with all of our heart? Why, why, why do we hold back? Why do we excuse ourselves? Why do we give our hearts to other things? Well, this brings us to the heart of the problem, the problem of the heart. Moving down on your outline here, what, what is the problem of the heart? It's depravity. The deeper problem is depravity. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God tells us that he sees not as man sees, for man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This verse, and this verse alone, should cause us all to fear and tremble. We live in a society where the way that you look will grant you particular privileges, right? Uh, the pretty privilege or whatever, right? You can, get, you can get off with stuff based on how you look or how you carry yourself or what you drive or what you're wearing. Not with God. He is not impressed with your watch, your haircut, your, uh, you know, your, your bling or whatever. He, you, you can't bribe him. You can't fool him. He looks at the heart. Now, in our culture, though, because we have this, oh, I'm spiritual and I'm good and whatever, uh, we need to bust that bubble because according to God's word, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is what? Deceitful. In fact, it is more deceitful than anything else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. It's, it's sick. It's deceitful. It tells us we're fine. It's deceitful and tells us it's not me. It's, it's those people or it's, it's, it's him. It's her. It's someone else. It's not me. So the problem is compounded, however, because God will not only judge our deeds, but he'll also judge our hearts. Look up here at the next verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways. As every effect must have a cause, there is a cause or a reason for the fact that personal sin is universal. Ten out of ten people sin. Why? Because ten out of ten people are depraved. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We actually sin because we're sinners. Let me say it again. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This is what we call depravity. The theologian Dr. Schaefer writes that depravity is what God declares that he sees and precisely what he sees when he looks at fallen man. The picture looks dark. That's what we read in, in John. It's, things are dark. I praise God that the light has come, but there still is darkness. There still is depravity. There, there's still this reality that is before us. Would you turn back to the book of Genesis, which I've already alluded to, but find your way to the sixth chapter in the book of Genesis. After the fall, after the unrequited love scene in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to see what the Lord sees. As Dr. Schaefer says, depravity is what God declares that he sees. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, what do we read? The Lord saw. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. The Lord is sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his own heart. Now, to be sure, this is anthropomorphic language in terms of God being sorry. God is all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen before it happens, so he's not regretting in any sense. But we get, we, we, we get to see his immutable uh, passion as he is grieved, as his love is rejected. As he diagnoses as the great physician what the problem is, the problem is the wickedness of man. Turn to the 8th chapter. Find your way in Genesis 8, verse 21. 
Genesis 8, 21. Here, here in the text, on the heels of the flood history, we see Noah building an altar in verse 20. And we see God in verse 21 smelling the soothing aroma. And the Lord says to Himself, I will never again curse the ground of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy everything as I have done on the heels of the flood. God is merciful. He's gracious to not give us what we deserve. He has punished humanity in the past and will in the future. Here in the 21st verse of Genesis chapter 8, though, again, we see His diagnosis. The intent of humanity's heart is evil from the get-go. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we read, There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11 says, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. Romans 3.11 says, No one seeks God. And yet in our day, people say, Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm seeking after God. I'll grant that you're seeking after someone, but the one that you're seeking after is not the God of creation. You're seeking after a figment of your own imagination, God. There's a God who is, and there's a God people want, and the two are not the same. Continuing on in Romans 3, he says in the next verse, verse 12, all have turned aside. There is no one who does good, not even one. We've all, we've all done bad. We've, we've all been condemned by His law. Ten out of ten people sin. We, we all know what this is. And again, I say this not to shake my finger at anyone because the finger points back at me. We, I'm included in this. All means all, that's all, all means. I'm included in this diagnosis. We see in Psalm chapter 58, look up here at verse 3, even from birth, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Well, what I said earlier, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born this way. We're born depraved. Surely, Psalm 51 verse 5, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is a very unique idea from the ancient world. Uh, surely, there are many religions that humans have made up, and typically in the religions that humans make, you can spot the humanity in them because they make the humans look better than they are. <laughs> you know, salvation is found inside of you. You go inside and you meditate and, and the good comes out. And you know, See, these are the kinds of religions that humans make. The revelation of God has something that is the antithesis of that. It says, no, 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 don't go inside because what you find inside is nasty in there. You're not going to find salvation in there. You're going to find condemnation in there. These verses are very instructive. Even a child in the womb and coming from the womb is, is wayward and sinful. We are often taught that right, a, a human becomes bad sort of later in life, you see. But the Bible teaches that man is born this way. Man is conceived this way. Your children are never morally neutral, not even from the womb. And if you don't believe this, we have volunteer spaces in children's ministry. We could use you. We, we could use you in the nursery. You will find out fast. Those are vipers and diapers back there. They are, they are vicious. You take two little kids and put them in a crib and give them one toy. What do they do? Oh, no, you go first. Oh, no, 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 that, that, that's yours, you know. When you're done, I'll have a turn, right? No, no, it's mine, mine, no. I got seven kids. All their first words were mine, no, <laughs> you know. 
it wasn't dad or mama, it was mine. It was just sheer rage. Ah, you know, they're, they're born this way. We're all born this way. Now let's probe. Let's do some more biblical cardiology here. Moving down the outline, the how of the heart. So we have, uh, we have been discussing the what of the heart. Now let's talk about the how of the heart. How, how does all of this work? How, how, how is the heart saying, my, no, what's, the, what, what's going on in the heart, right? Well, it goes a little something like this. We do what we do because we want to do it. Uh, parenting, right? When your kids do something that they weren't supposed to do, and you have that conversation, why did you do it? And what do they say? Uh, because, 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 right? Say, no, why, why did you do it? We'll see, beca- we'll see because, because, I, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know. You know why they did what they did? Because they wanted to. We don't have to get all psychological and philosophical. Why did you do what you did because you wanted to? And the heart is at the center of that desire and that will. And, 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 and so the heart is fundamental to your will and your desires, your volition. This means that while all of humanity are perfectly free to come to God, humanity won't come to God because humanity doesn't want Him. This is one of the misunderstandings as it relates to human will and reconciliation with God. I I was sharing earlier in terms of when you witness to people and you go, man, look at what Jesus did for you. Look at how loving He is. Isn't He great? And He loves and He's so great and He died for you and and it's a free gift. Isn't that awesome? They're like, yeah, no, I I I don't want that, you know. And once you get past all the excuses, yeah, well, the Bible and what about you know, the Christians and the hypocrites and science and, you know, whatever, and you answer all of that and you show, no, actually, this is scientific and whatever, and you go, so now do you want it? No, nah, I'm cool. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm cool. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it. Humanity's problem as it relates to God isn't that they don't have enough knowledge enough science, enough reasons, enough anything, the, the fundamental problem that we have is we're born into the world depraved, and so we don't want Him. People will say, how can God hold you accountable to do what you cannot do? You Christians, you have a God who's sending people to hell, and, and, and He sends people to hell, and He judges them on all of this, but how can God hold them accountable to do what they don't want to do? If salvation is a gift of God that you cannot uh, arrive at... Uh, uh, synergistically, me choosing to receive God and God choosing to forgive me or whatever, then how can I be held responsible? You're, you're saying that my heart doesn't want Him, so then, then is that fair for Him to judge people if they don't want Him? Well, the heart of the matter it doesn't relate to ability, it relates to desire. I want to explain this to you. It's, it's very important for you to understand this, and I'm going to give you a, a, a little picture here with some circles to help you understand. On the side here, you have the circle of ability. Then overlapping with it, you have the circle of desire. Okay? And in the middle of the overlap of ability and desire, you have the will. Okay? Let's unpack this. Biblical cardiology. Okay? I am able, I am able to, to change one of my children's diapers, and before I throw it into the trash... I'm able to lick it. Right? I'm, I'm able to. You are too. We've got some newborn babies. You can take that diaper, and before you throw it in the trash, you can just, just take a look, just, just lick it, and then throw it away. 
Everyone in here is able to do that. Okay? I've, I've changed a lot of diapers in my life. I, the thought has never even crossed my mind to do it. It might cross yours now, but please don't do it. I'm not suggesting, Pastor Matt said if I do it. No, I'm not, don't TikTok it. Don't, do, don't ruin my illustration here. You are able to lick the diaper, but you will never do it. Why not? Because you don't desire to. You don't want to. You, 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 you don't desire to. Okay? So I've never chosen to do it because I don't want to do it. Okay? Now, on the other hand, there is all kinds of things that I want to do, but I'm not able to. I would love to fly. I would love to just, <laughs> just, just go turn into a drone. I would love to do that. I'm not able to do it, so I can't do it. I, I, I would love to leap over buildings in a single bound. I, I would love to. I would love to materialize bacon. I would love to just, bacon, you know, by the power of my word, bacon, you know. Uh, uh, name it and claim it. Bacon, uh, manifest. I would love to be able to do that. I can't. I would love to go to In-N-Out, get a burger, and then bacon it, just like that. They really should have bacon on the menu. Put it on the secret menu. That would be great. I would love that, but I, I'm, I'm not able to do that. I have made bacon, though, and went there and put it on. I've done that, I admit. I desire to do things that I'm not able to do, right? And I'm able to do things that I don't want to do. Why did you take the cookie out of the cookie jar? I desired the cookie, and I was able. I was able to reach it. Now, since our hearts are dead and born in sin and depraved, we are not born desiring God. We do not want him. Uh, we do not want him. Uh, pe people talk about hell. Uh, people don't want hell. You, you say, hey, for sake of argument, if hell was real, would you want to go there? No, I don't want to go there. That sounds like a miserable place. People don't want hell when they rightly understand it, but the problem is they also don't want God. People will get mad and they'll say, well, you, you think I'm going to hell? As a rhetorical tactic to make... Uh, you know, you seem insensitive and judgmental, but the truth is, they should say, your, your God is repulsive to me. The issue isn't hell. The issue is God. And the way that we're born because of this reality of depravity, it, it, it isn't, hell isn't, hell isn't what we don't like. It's God that we don't like. Your God is repulsive to me, and spending eternity with him in heaven would be hell for me, so I don't want that. People won't say that, however. But that is the core issue. Just as someone who is caught doing something that's wrong and they can't confess, they say, well, see, it was because of this. Or someone who you, you saw, you got it on camera. You got it on the ring camera. I got it on the ring camera that you stole the skateboard or whatever. No, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It's on the camera, though, you see. They won't admit it. They cannot see it. But the reality is, as revealed by God, we don't want him. The man who does not believe is easily exposed when we begin talking about who God is because as we describe God and His justice and His wrath, they'll go, ooh, I don't like that. You see, the God that I like is like this, dot, dot, dot. And therein, we have the problem, the problem of the heart. And the God that you want is not the God who is. The two are not the same. How can we have hope then? This... 
message of depravity leads me to despair. How can I have any hope? Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against God. What will we do? How can we have hope? As the scriptures look at cardiology, it raises this very question. How can we have hope? How, on your outline, is the problem of the heart remedied? It reminds me of Matthew chapter 19. Who can be saved? If this is true, Jesus, they ask, who can be saved, Matthew 19, 25? And Jesus looks at them and says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Would you move in your Bibles from the book of Genesis back to the Gospel of John? I'm going to show you an incredible passage in the Gospel of John that, 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 that speaks to how the heart is remedied. The problem is remedied by none other than God Himself. And praise be to God that He is gracious and He breathes life into dead hearts and He makes them new. As you're turning to John and find your way to the third chapter, let me put in front of you one of the Hebrew prophets, Ezekiel, in the 36th chapter, verses 26, 27. The prophet says, I will give you a new heart. Speaking in first person for God, that God intends to give fallen humanity a new heart and a new spirit within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God will give depraved humans a heart operation. And He's not just going to cut you open and do a little jerry-rigging of some of the arteries. He's going to pull the whole thing out and give you a transplant. It cannot be solved by any other way. This is what we call being born again. He takes the old heart out that is stone and He puts a new one in. He does that. It cannot be solved by any other means. We can't do it to ourselves any more than you could cut your chest open and operate on your own heart. It requires a work from God. We can't do it ourselves because we're depraved. We're, we're dirty. Jesus said in Matthew 23, you clean the outside of the cup. You clean the outside of the dish. But inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Humans have been making up religious for a long time. And it's easy to spot the ones that humans have made up. Because they always promise a way of salvation that involves you cleaning yourself up. You working, and then God responds. That is the mark of a human religion. The mark of divine revelation from God is the opposite. It says, no, there's nothing that you can do. Furthermore, you wouldn't even want to do it. If there was something you could do, you wouldn't want it. It's like licking a diaper to you. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees, we read. A religious leader. A hard-working, conservative, educated, lovable man. A man named Nicodemus. He was a, a ruler of the Jewish people. And he came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher and no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can you be born again when you're... You're old. 
You, you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb and be born again, can you? It's crazy. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. You see, how it's going to be remedied, how it is going to be solved is by God taking the old heart that you were born with that doesn't want Him and He removes it and gives you a new one. New birth, new life. Your first birth leaves you with a desire that is against Him. See, God isn't sending people to hell because they're, they're not able, right? If God said, everyone who doesn't materialize bacon is going to hell, you'd say, Man, that's not fair, I can't materialize bacon. If God said, Who, whoever doesn't levitate is going to hell, you say, that's not fair, I can't do that. That's, God doesn't command you to do what you're not able to do. God commands you to obey His law, and you are able to obey His law. But you don't want to. You don't want to. And hence it is fair for you to be punished by the law because you're able to do the law, but the problem is you don't want to. Therefore, you need new birth. You need a new heart. You need a heart that's, that's beating for Him and pulsing for Him. You say, okay, okay, that sounds great. Like, like how, how, how does that work? Uh, uh, how do I get that? Verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound. You do not know where it comes from, but where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's like the wind, you see. You say, I don't understand. What do you mean it's like the wind? The wind blows. It's a God thing. God makes the wind blow. God makes the wind blow, and God makes the depraved have a new heart by the same power. John is clear here in the text as he records the teaching of Jesus in this intimate conversation with this religious man. John elsewhere in his gospel explains it. Look at John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Look at John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. John 8, 23. Why do you, you, you don't understand what I'm saying? Because you were not able to listen to my word. You see, when God moves, like the wind, there's phenomenon with it. When God moves in salvation, there's phenomenon with it. The phenomenon is repentance and faith. The call of the gospel to repent and believe in Him. When God moves, that is exactly what happens. You have John 3 in front of you. Look back at the text. Look at, look at verse 10. Jesus says to him, aren't you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and, and you do not believe, how will you believe if you hear heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, so that the world might be saved through Him, though. He who believes in Him is not judged, and he who does not believe has already been judged, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. We read about that in John 1. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, 
and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in who and by who? What does it say? God. God is the one who saves. No one in here who's a believer in Christ, you didn't save yourself. It is a gift of God that no one, no one may boast and take credit. This is not a man-made religion. Man-made religions give you the credit and give you the glory. You did it for yourself. This is humbling and it levels us and it is important for us, brothers and sisters, to realize as we bear witness of Him in the world, as you see people who are lost in the world, as you watch the news and, or you have a conversation, you say, how could they think that way? Why would they do that? Why, why this? Why that? Oh my goodness, look at what's happening over here. Oh my goodness. You would be there too, but by His grace. You would be there too, but by His grace. The Christian, the Christian should never be guilty of arrogance or looking down on anyone because this message that we have revealed to us, this biblical cardiology reminds us of where we would be without Him. It's all His doing. Okay, so He does this work. He gives me a new heart. He saves me, and like the wind, it's, it's Him, and it's wrought in God, right? Okay, so but how do I care for this new heart that He has given to me? Which leads to the next question on the outline. How, how do I care for this heart? How do I take care of this new thing He's given me? You know, you get an operation, you get a new knee, a new elbow, a new whatever, you know, you gotta go, hey, hey, how do I take care of this thing? Get some hair plugs. How, how do I take care of these, you know? I don't want to fall out like the other ones did. How, what kind of shampoo do I use? How do I take care of this? Well, when the Bible talks about the Christian life, it talks about loving God with all of our hearts. And God is not content to live in the periphery of our lives. He will settle for nothing short of being in the center. This is in stark contrast to other popular views of the Christian life, but we care for our heart and giving it all to God. This requires knowledge of who God is and what God has done, and it requires uh, the discipline of continually living in light of these things. This is what we read in Scripture. In fact, we read this at the beginning of our worship service. If you weren't here on time, let me read it again. Proverbs 23. Apply your heart to discipline, your ears to the words of knowledge. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul, right? My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart will be glad and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. This will be shown in the way that God works in us. The heart is being changed. Salvation is described in the Bible as justification. Salvation is described in the Bible as reconciliation. It's described as adoption. Uh, to be justified is to be declared right in a court. To, 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 be, to be adopted is to be declared a, a family member. To be reconciled is to have a relationship restored, you see. To be ransomed, another metaphor in Scripture, is to be purchased, to be bought. So in salvation, God's adopted us and purchased us and He's reconciled us and He's, he's made us right. That is justification. And now as we're walking in light of that, this is what we call the work of sanctification. You can adopt a teenager and make him a part of your home, but chances are it's going to be a while before the teenager acclimates to the way that the house is supposed to operate. 
That's what we're working out in fear and trembling, our salvation. In Matthew 7, 17, Jesus spoke about how every tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. In salvation, you've been changed. And we'll see the fruit and we expect the fruit. That's how we care for the new heart that has been given to us. We long to cultivate fruit in it. We long to then lay to death to mortify ungodly attitudes and to embrace godly attitudes. Instead of seeking revenge, we need to entrust matters to God. Instead of being afraid of others, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. Instead of having uh, arrogance and pride, we need to walk in humility. Instead of doing what I want and the love of self, we have a love for others. Instead of being covetous, we need to be generous. For, for most non-Christians, and sadly for some Christians, the Christian life is just a matter to them of, of keeping rules, you know, doing the do's and don'ting the don'ts, but actually it's a matter of the heart. The keeping of the rules need to flow from a heart that is given to God. It needs to flow from our desires. And how we care for that is by crying out to God and continually coming in repentance and in faith. Now, let's move on our outline to the why of the heart. So we've seen the what of the heart, the how of the heart, now the why of the heart. Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The key and the why of the heart for the Christian life is to make God our supreme treasure. What cravings and beliefs rule your heart, friends? When pressures increase, do you get the upper hand on the situation or people involved? Is it hard for you to trust God because you think you will be used or manipulated? Do you lack courage in Christ because you're afraid of what other people might think or say or do? Are you judgmental or critical of others? Gossiping, complaining? Are the typical ways that you respond to trials comfort-driven, fear-driven, people-pleasing driven? What rules your heart? Now the last passage I want to take you to comes from the pen of John and it's 1 John chapter 3, if you would turn to the right and find your way to 1 John chapter 3. What rules the heart is seen in what we are living for, what we give time to, what we give money to, what makes us happy, what makes us smile. That is what helps us to see the why of the heart, because the, the heart does what it wants, and so we ask probing questions to try and get at that. The conclusion to today's message on your outline, point three, the duty and the delight. We've discussed depravity, we've discussed the darkness, and now we move to our duty and our delight. Again, to conclude the message by emphasizing that we want to be worshiping God out of desire and not of mere duty. It needs to flow from delight. When it flows from delight, you don't have to make yourself do it. That's why. I no, I don't have to be forced to eat a bacon cheeseburger. No, no, you know, as a kid, my dad, you got to finish everything on your plate. I had one of those dads. You finish everything on your plate. I never, I was never forced to finish a bacon cheeseburger. It's always a Brussels sprout, some cauliflower, something like that. If you want it, you will consume it. If you want God, if you're living for Him, if He's given you a new heart, you're in the sweet spot when it's flowing from desire. Now there is a time where duty needs to kick in and you might need to make yourself do something that you don't want to do. And that happens. But the sweet spot is when you don't have to force yourself. You just want it. And you're worshiping the Lord and you're enjoying that delight. Psalm 18, 28. For you light my lamp. 
The Lord my God illumines my darkness. Nehemiah 8.9 The joy of the Lord is my strength. When I lack strength, it is often I lack joy because I've been filling my cup with something else that is robbing me of my joy. Now, as we've discussed cardiology this morning, and in a moment I'll close with reading from the third chapter of 1 John, we have seen what our problem is. We've seen the problem of depravity. We have seen how God rescues this from us as we come in repentance of faith, having received a new heart in Him. We live in a church cultural era where often the problem of sin and the problem of the heart and the remedy of it is reduced, as I was raised, into inviting Jesus into your heart. When I was a kid, the gospel that was given to me wasn't about my rebellion and sin and the triune God and the rest. It was just about putting Jesus in my heart, and that was going to fix everything. Put Jesus in your heart. Invite Jesus into your heart. Um, you won't hear me talking this way, and you certainly won't see bumper stickers like this on, on, on my car or anything, because what it is doing is it's robbing the core of our biblical cardiology. The remedy isn't me accepting Jesus into my heart. The remedy isn't uh, reducing the gospel into some a pithy sort of thing. The, the remedy is surrender, complete and total surrender to God. David Platt writes, accept Jesus into your heart, pray this prayer, invite Jesus into your life. Should it not concern us that there is no superstitious prayer in the New Testament? Should it not concern us that the Bible never uses the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart or invite Jesus into your life? It's not the gospel we see being preached. It's modern evangelism built on sinking sand and it runs the risk of disillusioning millions of souls. It's a very dangerous thing to lead people to think that they are Christian when they have not biblically responded to the gospel. If we're not careful, we will take the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place, and it'll taste better to the crowds. It's not just dangerous, it's damning. Mind you, I have no problem with saying receive Jesus. The real issue comes down to finding our assurance in pithy things that don't call out repentance and don't call out sin and give people false assurance that they have somehow gotten right with God because they invited him into our heart or repeated some sort of a prayer. The call of the gospel is the goodness of the Son incarnate revealing the love of the triune God and that while we were yet sinners, he would die for us. The emphasis is ultimately on him. The part on, of it that emphasizes us is what we have done. Uh, much of the preaching that I grew up on, it was basically like, God really loves you. He's got a plan for your life or whatever. And you just invite him in your heart and everything works right. The message of the scripture is much different. In fact, coming to Jesus, you might find out that things don't work so good anymore. You might have your whole world turned upside down. People who you thought were your friends, they're not going to be your friends. You have family turn on you, financial burdens, physical burdens. He hasn't promised. He hasn't promised you an easy life, your best life now if you come to Him. What He has promised is that He will take care of you. What He has promised is that He will be good to you. What He has promised to you is His unconditional love. We're going to have communion in a moment after we read 1 John 3 to close the message. And as we come to the communion table, we are reminded of the one who was broken for us, of the one whose blood was shed for us, of that great love that he has given to us. Let's read from the text of 1 John chapter 3, and we'll let the word of the Lord conclude the sermon.
1 John 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? <laughs> Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we have the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the Word of the Lord. God, we thank You for the gift of Your Spirit. Apart from Him, we will be left with hearts of stone. In Him... Your precious Spirit who blows like the wind wherever He wills, we have new life. Born again of the Spirit. In our, cult in our culture, God, as you well know, the term born again is thrown around in so many different and peculiar ways. But the way it is laid out in your Word is so beautiful, especially in light of the reality that we are born condemned. And so being born again is to have condemnation lifted. It's to receive a new heart. And Lord, we confess that this great work that you have given to us, we are not always mindful as we should. And we don't tend to and care for the new heart that you have given us. Many who are on uh, transplant lists for organs, we hear stories of, of those who, who get it and they get the organ only to turn around and not care for it and, and, and suffer and die. Lord, you have given us a new heart. May we care for that heart and enjoy the, the joy that that heart beats with and the love and repentance and faith that is packed into that heart. As we come to the communion table now, Lord, and we sing songs to you, I pray that you would fill us with joy, happiness, peace, Lord, that you would lift our, our, our burdens, that you would lift our, our guilt and our shame, and that as we come to the table, we would see the covering that we have in you, the washing and cleansing we have in you. Bless this time of communion and bless our closing songs of worship. I ask, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.